Section 8 of The Scrapbook, Volume 1, Sampler by Various, edited by Frank A. Muncie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. The Tapestried Chamber by Sir Walter Scott. Section 8. This tale by Sir Walter Scott is justly reckoned among the most effective ghost stories ever written. Its art lies in its perfect simplicity, which, for the moment, convinces the reader of its truth and therefore makes the horror of it intensely real. Scott had himself a strain of superstition in his nature, derived in part from his Scottish ancestry and heightened by the strange stories and gruesome legends which had been told him by the peasants around whose fires he had sat at night while still a boy. His belief in the supernatural appears and reappears in many of his most famous novels, as in the episode of the Grey Spectre in Waverley, the second sight of Meg Merrilies in Guy Mannering, and the weird figure of Norna of the Fitful Head in The Pirate. But no better example can be found in Scott's command of the mysterious as an element in fiction than this short story of The Tapestried Chamber. The following narrative is given from the pen, so far as memory permits, in the same character in which it was presented to the author's ear, nor has he claimed to further praise, or to be more deeply censured, than in proportion to the good or bad judgment which he has employed in selecting his materials, as he has studiously avoided any attempt at ornament which might interfere with the simplicity of the tale. At the same time, it must be admitted that the particular class of stories which turns on the marvelous possesses a stronger influence when told than when committed to print. The volume taken up at noonday, though rehearsing the same incidents, conveys a much more feeble impression than is achieved by the voice of the speaker on a circle of fireside auditors who hang upon the narrative as the narrator details the minute incidents which serve to give it authenticity, and lowers his voice with an affectation of mystery while he approaches the fearful and wonderful part. It was with such advantages that the present writer heard the following events related, more than twenty years since, by the celebrated Miss Seward of Litchfield, who, to her numerous accomplishments, added in a remarkable degree, the power of narrative in private conversation. In its present form, the tale must necessarily lose all the interest which was attached to it by the flexible voice and intelligent features of the gifted narrator. Yet still, read aloud to an undoubting audience by the doubtful light of the closing evening, or, in silence, by a decaying taper, and amidst the solitude of a half-lighted apartment, it may redeem its character as a good ghost story. Miss Seward always affirmed that she had delivered her information from an authentic source, although she suppressed the names of the two persons chiefly concerned. I will not avail myself of any particulars I may have since received concerning the localities of the detail, but suffer them to rest under the same general description in which they were first related to me and for this same reason i will not add to or diminish the narrative by any circumstance whether more or less material but simply rehearse as i heard it a story of supernatural terror 
About the end of the American War, when the officers of Lord Cromwell's army, which surrounded at Yorktown, and others who had been made prisoners during the impolitic and ill-fated controversy, were returning to their own country to relate their adventures and repose themselves after their fatigues, there was among them a general officer to whom Miss S. gave the name of Brown, but merely, as I understood, to save the inconvenience of introducing a nameless agent in the narrative. He was an officer of merit, as well as a gentleman of high consideration for family and attainments. Some business had carried General Brown upon a tour through the western counties, when, in the conclusion of a morning stage, he found himself in the vicinity of a small country town, which presented a scene of uncommon beauty, and a character peculiarly English. The little town, with its stately old church, whose tower bore testimony to the devotion of ages long past, lay amid pastures and cornfields of small extent, but bounded and divided with hedgerow timber of great age and size. There were few marks of modern improvement. The environs of the place intimated neither the solitude of decay nor the bustle of novelty. The houses were old, but in good repair, and the beautiful little river murmured freely on its way to the left of the town, neither restrained by a dam nor bordered by a towing path. Upon a gentle eminence, nearly a mile to the southward of the town, were seen, among many venerable oaks and tangled thickets, the turrets of a castle, as old as the wars of York and Lancaster, but which seemed to have received important alterations during the age of Elizabeth and her successor. It had not been a place of great size, but whatever accommodation it formerly afforded was, it must be supposed, still to be obtained within its walls. At least such was the inference which General Brown drew from observing the smoke arise merrily from several of the ancient wreathed and carved chimney-stalks. The wall of the park ran alongside of the highway for two or three hundred yards, and through the different points by which the eye found glimpses into the woodland scenery it seemed to be well stocked. Other points of view opened in succession, now a full one of the front of the old castle, and now a side glimpse at its particular towers, the former rich in all the bizarrerie of the Elizabethan school, while the simple and solid strength of other parts of the building seemed to show that they had been raised more for defense than ostentation. Delighted with the particular glimpses which he obtained of the castle through the woods and glades by which this ancient feudal fortress was surrounded, our military traveler was determined to inquire whether it might not deserve a nearer view, and whether it contained family pictures or other objects of curiosity worthy of a stranger's visit. When, leaving the vicinity of the park, he rolled through a clean and well-paved street, and stopped at the door of a well-frequented inn. Before ordering horses to proceed on his journey, General Brown made inquiries concerning the proprietor of the chateau which had so attracted his admiration, and was equally surprised and pleased at hearing, in reply, a nobleman named, whom we shall call, Lord Woodville. How fortunate! Much of Brown's early recollections, both at school and at college, had been connected with young Woodville, 
whom, by a few questions, he now ascertained to be the same with the owner of this fair domain. He had been raised to the peerage by the decease of his father a few months before, and, as the general learned from the landlord, the term of mourning being ended, was now taking possession of his paternal estate, in the jovial season of merry autumn, accompanied by a select party of friends, to enjoy the sports of a country famous for game. This was delightful news to our traveller. Frank Woodville had been Richard Brown's fag at Eton, and his chosen intimate at Christchurch. Their pleasures and their tasks had been the same, and the honest soldier's heart warmed to find his early friend in possession of so delightful a residence, and of an estate, as the landlord assured him with a nod and a wink, fully adequate to maintain and add to his dignity. Nothing was more natural than that the traveller should suspend a journey, which there was nothing to render hurried, to pay a visit to an old friend under such agreeable circumstances. The fresh horses, therefore, had only the brief task of conveying the general's travelling carriage to Woodville Castle. A porter admitted them at a modern Gothic lodge, built in that style to correspond with the castle itself, and, at the same time, rang a bell to give warning of the approach of visitors. Apparently the sound of the bell had suspended the separation of the company, bent on the various amusements of the morning, for, on entering the court of the chateau, several young men were lounging about in their sporting dresses, looking at, and criticizing, the dogs which the keepers held in readiness to attend their pastime. As General Brown alighted, the young lord came to the gate of the hall, and, for an instant, gazed as at a stranger upon the countenance of his friend, on which war, with its fatigues and its wounds, had made a great alteration. But the uncertainty lasted no longer than till the visitor had spoken, and the hearty greeting which followed was such as can only be exchanged between those who have passed together the merry days of careless boyhood or early youth. "'If I could have formed a wish, my dear Brown,' said Lord Woodville, "'it would have been to have you here, of all men, upon this occasion, which my friends are good enough to hold as a sort of holiday.' Do not think you have been unwatched during the years you have been absent from us. I have traced you through your dangers, your triumphs, your misfortunes, and was delighted to see that, whether in victory or defeat, the name of my old friend was always distinguished with applause. The general made a suitable reply, and congratulated his friend on his new dignities, and the possession of a place and domain so beautiful. "'Nay, you have seen nothing of it as yet,' said Lord Woodville, "'and I trust you do not mean to leave us till you are better acquainted with it. "'It is true, I confess, that my present party is pretty large, "'and the old house, like other places of the kind, "'does not possess so much accommodation "'as the extent of the outward walls appears to promise. "'But we can give you a comfortable old-fashioned room, "'and I venture to suppose that your campaigns have taught you "'to be glad of worse quarters.' "'The general shrugged his shoulders and laughed. "'Ha! 
I presume, he said, the worst apartment in your chateau is considerably superior to the old tobacco cask, in which I was fain to take up my night's lodging when I was in the bush, as the Virginians call it, with the light core. There I lay, like Diogenes himself, so delighted with my covering from the elements that I made a vain attempt to have it rolled on to my next quarters, but my commander for the time would give way to no such luxurious provision, and I took farewell of my beloved cask with tears in my eyes. Well, then, since you do not fear your quarters, said Lord Woodville, you will stay with me a week at least. Of guns, dogs, fishing-rods, flies, and means of sport by sea and land, we have enough and to spare. You cannot pitch on an amusement, but we all find the means of pursuing it. But if you prefer the gun and pointers, I will go with you myself, and see whether you have mended your shooting since you have been among the Indians of the back settlements. The general gladly accepted his friendly host's proposal in all its points. After a morning of manly exercise, the company met at dinner, where it was the delight of Lord Woodville to conduce to the display of the high properties of his recovered friend, so as to recommend him to his guests, most of whom were persons of distinction. He led General Brown to speak of the scenes he had witnessed, and at every word marked alike the brave officer and the sensible man, who retained possession of his cool judgment under the most imminent dangers. The company looked upon the soldier with general respect, as on one who had proved himself possessed of an uncommon portion of personal courage. That attribute, of all others, of which everybody desires to be thought possessed. The day at Woodville Castle ended as usual in such mansions. The hospitality stopped within the limits of good order. Music, in which the young lord was a proficient, succeeded to the circulation of the bottle, cards, and billiards, for those who preferred such amusements, were in readiness, but the exercise of the morning required early hours, and not long after eleven o'clock the guests began to retire to their several apartments. The young lord himself conducted his friend, General Brown, to the chamber destined for him, which answered the description he had given of it, being comfortable, but old-fashioned. The bed was of the massive form used in the end of the seventeenth century, and the curtains of faded silk, heavily trimmed with tarnished gold. But then the sheets, pillows, and blankets looked delightful to the campaigner when he thought of his mansion, the cask. There was an air of gloom in the tapestry hangings, which, with their worn-out graces, curtained the walls of the little chamber, and gently undulated as the autumnal breeze found its way through the ancient lattice window, which pattered and whistled as the air gained entrance. The toilet, too, with its mirror, turbaned, after the manner of the beginning of the century, with a coiffure of murray-colored silk, and its hundred strange-shaped boxes, providing for arrangements which had been obsolete for more than fifty years, had an antique and, in so far, a melancholy aspect. But nothing could blaze more brightly and cheerfully than the two large wax candles, or, if aught could rival them, it was the flaming 
bickering faggots in the chimney that sent at once their gleam and their warmth through the snug apartment which notwithstanding the general antiquity of its appearance was not wanting in the least convenience that modern habits rendered either necessary or desirable this is an old-fashioned sleeping apartment general said the young lord but i hope you find nothing that makes you envy your old tobacco-cask i am not particular respecting my lodgings replied the general yet were i to make any choice i would prefer this chamber by many degrees to the gayer and more modern rooms of your family mansion believe me that when i unite its modern air of comfort with its venerable antiquity and recollect that it is your lordship's property i shall feel in better quarters here than if i were in the best hotel london could afford i trust i have no doubt that you will find yourself as comfortable as i wish you my dear general said the young nobleman and once more bidding his guest good-night he shook him by the hand and withdrew the general once more looked about him and internally congratulating himself on his return to peaceful life the comforts of which were endeared by the recollection of the hardships and dangers he had lately sustained undressed himself and prepared for a luxurious night's rest here contrary to the custom of this species of tale we leave the general in possession of his apartment until the next morning the company assembled for breakfast at an early hour but without the appearance of general brown who seemed the guest that lord woodville was desirous of honouring above all whom his hospitality had assembled around him he more than once expressed surprise at the general's absence and at length sent a servant to make inquiry after him the man brought back information that general brown had been walking abroad since an early hour of the morning in defiance of the weather which was misty and ungenial the custom of a soldier said the young nobleman to his friends many of them acquire habitual vigilance and cannot sleep after the early hour at which their duty usually commands them to be alert yet the explanation which lord woodville thus offered to the company seemed hardly satisfactory to his own mind and it was in a fit of silence and abstraction that he awaited the return of the general it took place near an hour after the breakfast bell had rung he looked fatigued and feverish his hair the powdering and arrangement of which was at this time one of the most important occupations of a man's whole day and marked his fashion as much as in the present time the tying of a cravat or the want of one was dishevelled uncurled void of powder and dank with dew his clothes were huddled on with a careless negligence remarkable in a military man whose real or supposed duties are usually held to include some attention to the toilet and his looks were haggard and ghastly so you have stolen a march upon us this morning my dear general said lord woodville or you have not found your bed so much to your mind as i had hoped and you seemed to expect how did you rest last night oh excellently well remarkably well never better in my life said general brown rapidly and yet with an air of embarrassment which was obvious to his friend he then hastily swallowed a cup of tea and neglecting or refusing whatever else was offered seemed to fall into a fit of abstraction 
You will take the gun today, General? said his friend and host, but had to repeat the question twice ere he received the abrupt answer. No, my lord, I am sorry I cannot have the honor of spending another day with your lordship. My post horses are ordered, and will be here directly. All who were present showed surprise, and Lord Woodville immediately replied, Post horses, my good friend, what can you possibly want with them when you promise to stay with me quietly for at least a week? I believe, said the general, obviously much embarrassed, that I might, in the pleasure of my first meeting with your lordship, have said something about stopping here a few days, but I have since found it altogether impossible. That is very extraordinary, answered the young nobleman. You seem quite disengaged yesterday, and you cannot have had a summons to-day, for our post has not come up from the town, and therefore you cannot have received any letters. General Brown, without giving any further explanation, muttered something of indispensable business, and insisted on the absolute necessity of his departure, in a manner which silenced all opposition on the part of his host, who saw that his resolution was taken, and forbore all further importunity. At least, however, he said, permit me, my dear Brown, since go you will, or must, to show you the view from the terrace which the mist that is now rising will soon display. He threw open a sash window and stepped down upon the terrace as he spoke. The general followed him mechanically, but seemed little to attend to what his host was saying, as, looking across an extended and rich prospect, he pointed out the different objects worthy of observation. Thus they moved on till Lord Woodville had attained his purpose of drawing his guest entirely apart from the rest of the company, when, turning around upon him with an air of great solemnity, he addressed him thus, Richard Brown, my old and very dear friend, we are now alone. Let me conjure you to answer me upon the word of a friend, and the honor of a soldier. How did you in reality rest during last night? most wretchedly indeed my lord answered the general in the same tone of solemnity so miserably that i would not run the risk of such a second night not only for all the lands belonging to this castle but for all the country which i see from this elevated point of view this is most extraordinary said the young lord as if speaking to himself then there must be something in the reports concerning that apartment Again, turning to the general, he said, For God's sake, my dear friend, be candid with me, and let me know the disagreeable particulars which have befallen you under a roof where, with consent of the owner, you should have met nothing save comfort. The general seemed distressed by this appeal, and paused a moment before he replied. My dear lord, he at length said, what happened to me last night is of a nature so peculiar and so unpleasant that I could hardly bring myself to detail it even to your lordship, were it not that, independent of my wish to gratify any request of yours, I think that sincerity on my part may lead to some explanation about a circumstance equally painful and mysterious. To others, the communication I am about to make might place me in the light of a weak-minded, superstitious fool, who suffered his own imagination to delude and bewilder him. But you have known me in childhood and youth, and will not suspect me of 
having adopted in manhood the feelings and frailties from which my early years were free. Here he paused, and his friend replied, Do not doubt my perfect confidence in the truth of your communication, however strange it may be, replied Lord Woodville. I know your firmness of disposition too well to suspect you could be made the object of imposition, and am aware that your honor and your friendship will equally deter you from exaggerating whatever you may have witnessed. Well, then, said the general, I will proceed with my story as well as I can, relying upon your candor, and yet distinctly feeling that I would rather face a battery than recall to my mind the odious recollections of last night. He paused a second time, and then, perceiving that Lord Woodville remained silent and in an attitude of attention, he commenced, though not without obvious reluctance, the history of his night adventures in the tapestried chamber. I undressed and went to bed so soon as your lordship left me yesterday evening, but the wood in the chimney which nearly fronted my bed blazed brightly and cheerfully, and, aided by a hundred exciting recollections of my childhood and youth, which had been recalled by the unexpected pleasure of meeting your lordship, prevented me from falling immediately asleep. I ought, however, to say that these reflections were all of a pleasant and agreeable kind, grounded on a sense of having for a time exchanged the labor, fatigues, and dangers of my profession for the enjoyments of a peaceful life, and the reunion of those friendly and affectionate ties which I had torn asunder at the rude summons of war. While such pleasing reflections were stealing over my mind, and gradually lulling me to slumber, I was suddenly aroused by a sound like that of the rustling of a silken gown, and the tapping of a pair of high-heeled shoes, as if a woman were walking in the apartment. Ere I could draw the curtain to see what the matter was, the figure of a little woman passed between the bed and the fire. The back of this form was turned to me, and I could observe from the shoulders and neck it was that of an old woman, whose dress was an old-fashioned gown, which, I think, ladies call a sock that is, a sort of robe completely loose in the body, but gathered into broad plates upon the neck and shoulders, which fall down to the ground and terminate in a species of train. I thought the intrusion singular enough, but never harbored for a moment the idea that what I saw was anything more than the mortal form of some old woman about the establishment, who had a fancy to dress like her grandmother, and who, having perhaps, as your lordship mentioned, that you were rather straitened for room, been dislodged from her chamber for my accommodation, had forgotten the circumstances and returned by twelve to her old haunt. Under this persuasion I have moved myself in bed and coughed a little, to make the intruder sensible of my being in possession of the premises. She turned slowly around, but, gracious heavens, my lord, what a countenance did she display to me! There was no longer any question what she was, or any thought of her being a living being. Upon a face which wore the fixed features of a corpse were imprinted the traces of the vilest and most hideous passions which had animated her while she lived. The body of some atrocious criminal seemed to have given up from the grave and the soul restored from the penal fire in order to form, for a space, a union with the ancient accomplice of its guilt. 
I started up in bed and sat upright, supporting myself on my palms as I gazed on this horrible spectre. The hag made, as it seemed, a single and swift stride to the bed where I lay, and squatted herself down upon it in precisely the same attitude which I had assumed in the extremity of horror, advancing her diabolical countenance within half a yard of mine, with a grin which seemed to intimate the malice and the derision of an incarnate fiend. Here General Brown stopped and wiped from his brow the cold perspiration with which the recollection of this horrible vision had covered it. "'My lord,' he said, "'I am no coward. I have been in all the mortal dangers incidental to my profession, and I may truly boast that no man ever knew Richard Brown dishonor the sword he wears. But in these horrible circumstances, under the eyes, and, as it seemed, almost in the grasp of an incarnation of an evil spirit, all firmness forsook me. All manhood melted from me like wax in the furnace, and I felt my hair individually bristle. The current of my life-blood ceased to flow, and I sank back in a swoon, as very a victim to panic terror as ever was a village girl or a child of ten years old. How long I lay in this condition I cannot pretend to guess. But I was roused by the castle clock striking one, so loud that it seemed as if it were in the very room. It was some time before I dared open my eyes, lest they should again encounter the horrible spectacle. When, however, I summoned courage to look up, she was no longer visible. My first idea was to pull my bell, wake the servants, and remove to a garret or a hayloft to be insured against a second visitation. Nay, I will confess the truth, that my resolution was altered, not by the shame of exposing myself, but by the fear that, as the bell-cord hung by the chimney, I might, in making my way to it, be again crossed by the fiendish hag, who, I figured to myself, might be still lurking about some corner of the apartment. I will not pretend to describe what hot and cold fever fits tormented me for the rest of the night, through broken sleep, weary vigils, and that dubious state which forms the neutral ground between them. A hundred terrible objects appeared to haunt me, but there was the great difference between the vision which I have described and those which followed, that I knew the last to be deceptions of my own fancy. Day at last appeared, and I rose from my bed, ill in health and humiliated in mind. I was ashamed of myself as a man and a soldier, and still more so at feeling my own extreme desire to escape from the haunted apartment, which, however, conquered all other considerations, so that, huddling on my clothes with the most careless haste, I made my escape from your lordship's mansion to seek in the open air some relief to my nervous system, shaken as it was by this horrible encounter with a visitant, for such I must believe her from the other world. Your lordship has now heard the case of my discomfiture, and of my sudden desire to leave your hospitable castle. In other places I trust we may often meet, but God protect me from ever spending a second night under that roof. Strange as the general's tale was, he spoke with such a deep air of conviction that it cut short all the usual commentaries which are made on such stories. 
Lord Woodville never once asked him if he was sure he did not dream of the apparition, or suggested any of the possibilities by which it is fashionable to explain supernatural appearances, as wild vagaries of the fancy or deceptions of the optic nerves. On the contrary, he seemed deeply impressed with the truth and reality of what he had heard, and after a considerable pause, regretted, with much appearance of sincerity, that his early friend should in his house have suffered so severely. "'I am the more sorry for your pain, my dear Brown,' he continued, "'that it is the unhappy, though most unexpected result, of an experiment of my own. You must know that, for my father and grandfather's time at least, the apartment which was assigned to you last night had been shut on account of reports that it was disturbed by supernatural sights and noises.' When I came, a few weeks since, into possession of the estate, I thought the accommodation which the castle afforded for my friends was not extensive enough to permit the inhabitants of the invisible world to retain possession of a comfortable sleeping apartment. I therefore caused the tapestried chamber, as we call it, to be opened, and, without destroying its air of antiquity, I had such new articles of furniture placed in it as became the modern times. Yet, as the opinion that the room was haunted very strongly prevailed among the domestics, and was also known in the neighborhood and to many of my friends, I feared some prejudice might be entertained by the first occupant of the tapestried chamber, which might tend to revive the evil report which it had labored under, and so disappoint my purpose of rendering it a useful part of the house. I must confess, my dear Brown, that your arrival yesterday, agreeable to me for a thousand reasons besides, seemed the most favorable opportunity of removing the unpleasant rumors which attached to the room, since your courage was indubitable, and your mind free of any preoccupation on the subject. I could not, therefore, have chosen a more fitting subject for my experiment. Upon my life! said general brown somewhat hastily i am infinitely obliged to your lordship very particularly indebted indeed i am likely to remember for some time the consequences of the experiment as your lordship is pleased to call it nay now you are unjust my dear friend said lord woodville you have only to reflect for a single moment in order to be convinced that i could not augur the possibility of the pain to which you have been so unhappily exposed I was yesterday morning a complete skeptic on the subject of supernatural appearances. Nay, I am sure that, had I told you what was said about that room, those very reports would have induced you, by your own choice, to select it for your accommodation. It was my misfortune, perhaps my error, but really cannot be termed my fault, that you have been afflicted so strangely. Strangely, indeed, said the general resuming his good temper, and I acknowledge that I have no right to be offended with your lordship for treating me like what I used to think myself, a man of some firmness and courage. But I see my post-horses are arrived, and I must not detain your lordship from your amusement. Nay, my old friend, said Lord Woodville, since you cannot stay with us another day, which indeed I can no longer urge, Give me at least half an hour more. You used to love pictures, and I have a gallery of portraits, some of them by Van Dyck. 
representing ancestry to whom this property and castle formerly belonged. I think that several of them will strike you as possessing merit. General Brown accepted the invitation, though somewhat unwillingly. It was evident he was not to breathe freely or at ease till he left Woodville Castle far behind him. He could not refuse his friend's invitation, however, and the less so that he was a little ashamed of the peevishness which he had displayed toward his well-meaning entertainer. The general, therefore, followed Lord Woodville through several rooms into a long gallery hung with pictures, which the latter pointed out to his guest, telling the names and giving some account of the personages whose portraits presented themselves in progression. General Brown was but little interested in the details which these accounts conveyed to him. They were, indeed, of the kind which are usually found in an old family gallery. Here was a cavalier who had ruined the estate in the royal cause. There, a fine lady who had reinstated it by contracting a match with a wealthy roundhead. There hung a gallant who had been in danger for corresponding with an exiled court at St. Germain's, here one who had taken arms for William at the Revolution, and there a third that had thrown his weight alternately into the scale of Whig and Tory. While Lord Woodville was cramming these words into his guest's ear, against the stomach of his sense, they gained the middle of the gallery, when he beheld General Brown suddenly start and assume an attitude of the utmost surprise, not unmixed with fear, as his eyes were caught and suddenly riveted by a portrait of an old lady in a sack, the fashionable dress at the end of the seventeenth century. "'There she is!' he exclaimed. "'There she is, in form and features, though inferior in demoniac expression, to the hag that visited me last night.' If that be the case, said the young nobleman, there can remain no longer any doubt of the horrible reality of your apparition. That is the picture of a wretched ancestress of mine, of whose crimes a black and fearful catalogue is recorded in a family history in my charter chest. The recital of them would be too horrible. It is enough to say that in yon fatal apartment incest and unnatural murder were committed. I will restore it to the solitude to which the better judgment of those who preceded me had consigned it, and never shall any one, so long as I can prevent it, be exposed to a repetition of the supernatural horrors which could shake such courage as yours. Thus the friends, who had met with such glee, parted in a very different mood. Lord Woodville, to command the tapestry chamber to be unmantled and the doors built up, and General Brown to seek in some less beautiful country, and with some less dignified friend, forgetfulness of the painful night which he had passed in Woodville Castle. End of Section 8